Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast, podcast number four. I'm Joel, and today I'm going to be speaking with Gay Hendricks. And well, first about Gay, he's been in the field of, of personal development for over four decades, 45 plus years. Um, he's written over 40 books. And he has coached some really cool people, people like rock stars, like uh, Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computers, um, you know, CEOs of, of huge companies. So he really knows a lot about coaching these people. And today we're going to be speaking about his book, The Big Leap. It's a book, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And the essence of the book is about how to live from your genius um, so, so this interview is really about, well, what is your genius? How do you identify it? And then how do you begin to live more and more from that place in your life? And it's very fulfilling commitment to make. Now, we're also going to speak about one of the things that gets in the way of that. And that's our upper limit problem. Uh, so, uh, it's like a thermostat, and it kicks in every time we start to become more abundant, more successful. Uh, so we're going to talk about how do you kind of let go and release that as well. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast. Of course, you know, it's Coaches Rising podcast all about how do you become a more transformational, impactful coach. And if you love this one, check out the other ones in our podcast series. Enjoy. So um, fantastic to see you, Gay. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Just came from working out for an hour at the gym. Excellent, excellent. That sounds good. That sounds good. Um, and you are on the west coast of uh, the U.S. right now, yeah? Yes, I live about 11 miles from the ocean in a little mountain valley called Ojai, spelled O-J-A-I. Well, we're going to dive in. Um, I'd like to speak to you today about your work as a coach because you've been coaching for quite some time now. And um, also, I want to weave in some ideas that I, I loved reading your book, The Big Leap, um, really beautiful book. And I think it's got some fantastic ideas that coaches really should know about. So um, we're, going to, we're going to dive in. And I'd like to begin by asking, um, what's at the heart of your coaching? Like, what, what is it you do with your clients? Maybe that's a big question, but what comes up for you as I ask that? Yes. Um, well, the heart and soul of it, like in the big leap, there are two big problems that I address and show solutions for. One is how to get out from under what I call the upper limit problem, which is our tendency to keep ourselves limited below our level of full potential. And so the first thing that I work on with any person that I'm here with, it doesn't matter if they're the CEO of a Fortune 50 company. I've worked with plenty of those. And I've worked with, you know, rock and roll singers and actors and people from the regular realms of life. And it all boils down to the same thing. How are you limiting yourself? And what new conversation do you need to start so that you can peel away those limitations and express yourself in what I call the zone of genius? And so the second big thing the Big Leap looks at is how to establish yourself in your zone of genius. Mm -hmm. So if you were here sitting across from me in the first session, I might ask you things like, what percent of your time would you say right now are you spending 
doing what you most love to do, because that's always a signal to your zone of genius, is finding out what you most love to do. One of your, um, um, in England, I would often, um, when I would go to England, I would often stop at places that um, the philosopher J. Krishnamurti spoke yeah. at, and uh, he also spoke here in the town I live in. So I've heard many lectures by him over the years uh, before he died in the mid-80s. And one thing he always said was, the real purpose of education is to help you discover what above all you most love to do. And so I think that it doesn't matter if you're a street sweeper or an executive officer in a corporation, there's always a little nugget of your zone of genius in what you're already doing. And what we have to do is find out what that is and get it so that you're living there all the time. When I first started, I think I was using maybe 10% of my time in my zone of genius. So I set the big goal of spending half my time in my zone of genius. took me a few years to get there, but then I set the big goal of spending 70% of my time in my zone of genius. took me a few more years to get there. But then for the last 20 years or so, I've been working on how to spend 90%, 91%, 92% of my time in my zone of genius. So now, see, I saw my first client in 1968. So I've been at this almost um, almost 50 years, I think. Um, and it doesn't matter if I'm in Chicago or Calcutta or Beverly Hills, whatever the place is that people are located, they're always concerned about the same thing. How can I fulfill my potential? They may not cognitively know that that's what they're worried about, but if you get down to the bottom of things, it almost never has to do with sex or money or children or the things that people usually fight about. At the bottom of everything, it's, am I doing what I can to fulfill my potential here during my short time on earth? And that question lives in the background of everything we do and think and feel. So when a person is sitting here in front of me for the first time, I just start asking those big questions like, how much of your time now are you spending doing what you absolutely most love to do? And frequently people say, zero. Mm -hmm. And that to me, <sighs> you know, that weighs heavy on everybody's heart um, if you're not doing that. And like I mentioned, I've had CEOs of Fortune 50 companies in here who make multi-billion dollar decisions but have never really asked themselves the big question about, am I doing what I really most love to do? And it's embedded in every one of us, I think, to seek the very best for ourselves. And so I just bring that to the person's attention, uh, sometimes for the first time when I work with them. Mm. Beautiful answer. Um, so, of course, I want to talk to you a lot about the zone of genius and how we uh, know we're in it and access it. But I mean, how come more people aren't living in this place? Like, what are some of those, you know, the ways that we, we stop ourselves? You, you mentioned this upper limit problem, but like, how do we stop ourselves from living in the zone of genius? Yes. Well, you have to look very early because when we're born, we're born into a party that's been going on for many years. We're born into 
a set of programs, a set of assumptions, a language that's been spoken for a long, long time. And so we come into that and it's very easy to adopt those conversations and think they're your own. Like, for example, uh, one of the big breakthroughs that Katie and I made when we were first together, I was pedaling on my exercise bike one night in winter in Colorado, and this is around 1981, something like that, probably before you were born, Joel. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so I was uh, on my exercise bike on a long winter evening in Colorado, and I found myself worrying, are we going to have enough money to make it through to the end of the month? So that kept cycling through my mind. And all of a sudden, I had this moment of enlightenment where I realized, oh, that's the same conversation I heard around me all the time growing up. And I've just sort of adopted it as my own life. And now I'm living it out for another generation. And no doubt it was going on three or four generations because they were all focused on their survival. Can we make it? So I decided to stop that conversation and make a different conversation in my mind called how can I create maximum abundance for myself rather than how can I make it through to the end of the month? How can I create maximum abundance for myself while contributing to others at the same time? Now, that's a much bigger question. And one of the things that I think human beings need to do is ask ourselves the very biggest questions. We're not always going to find the answers to them, but just the asking of the question opens you up to wisdom at a bunch of different levels. So around here in our seminars, we call them wonder questions, because a good wonder question is a question you don't know the answer to, but you'd really like to know the answer to. Like, how can I create maximum abundance for myself while contributing to others at my maximum ability? To me, that's a great wonder question because it stretches me in every possible direction. It stretches me in creating my own abundance and it stretches me in creating abundance or contribution to the people that I'm working with. My life purpose, Joel, is I, I can state it in one sentence. It's that I expand in love, abundance, and creativity every day as I inspire others to do the same. And if I can stay true to that principle, I'm a happy guy. And so I formulated that back in the 1970s. And I really haven't deviated from it. I've been able to judge everything I do. Is, is it serving that purpose? Is it creating expansiveness and love, creativity and abundance every day for me? And am I doing it in such a way that it inspires others? It lets me know at an instant whether I'm fulfilling my life purpose or not. I hadn't figured that out until I was maybe, you know, 30 years old or something like that. So it's never too late. I've had people in here who are 75 years old and are still working on that. But uh, when, I, when I was 30, I began to realize that I didn't have my own clearly defined life purpose. And one of the things I say, unless you know what your life purpose is, you can be sure you're living out somebody else's life purpose. And so we need to look at where do we get these upper limits installed? And one of the ways they get installed is just by being born into a limiting conversation about money, about love, about creativity, about contribution. And so you need to start looking at where did your limitations begin and how can I lift them off myself so I can find my own true path now? Mm, yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm just thinking of my own childhood when my I remember my parents saying things like, "Oh, we're gonna have to tighten our belts now." You know, like uh, uh, we're in a you know an economy drive. That that's the word they would use in the family. Like, and I remember as a child, you know, not really knowing what they were meaning, but it just felt serious, and it was like the scarcity, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to be careful. We've got to be cautious. And um, I f- I'm coaching too, and I find that's one of these, this scarcity thinking, you know, that I'm almost, it's like you have to educate people that they're allowed to live in a place of possibility or abundance, that, it's, that, it's, that that's actually a possibility. Um, and then and that they can start to uncover these kind of hidden, um, you know, beliefs or barriers to that. So it inspires me a lot to hear what you're saying. I really appreciate that. That's, I'm glad you discovered that because I had exactly the same thing in my own family. It was all about scarcity. Yeah. And the thing is that when people, when things get like that, people think, let's tighten our belt. But I want people to think, let's expand our creativity right. because that's where money comes from. It doesn't come from working 48 hours instead of 46 hours, that'll get you somewhere, but it won't get you where you really want to be because it doesn't tap the deeper creativity uh, that's necessary to bring you out of that level of reality into a whole new level of abundance. Mm. Well, well, let's talk about that a bit more because, you know, in a way, this zone of genius idea that grabbed hold of me and it's, it's like I'm on that path you're talking about, inspired by what you wrote. You know, how can I live from my genius more and and work less, but have more impact in a way? And so tell me about that, that this, you know, this zone of genius and the creativity that comes online there. What kind of things do you start to see people doing? One thing is that people start doing more of what they love to do. So the first thing I ask people to do, Joel, is I ask people to create 10 minutes a day. That's all, 10 minutes a day, and put it on their calendar as going to be their 10 minutes of genius. And maybe all you can do is sit in a room by yourself for 10 minutes saying, what is my genius, or journaling about it. But that's the place to begin, because like uh, the philosopher Blaise Pascal said, that all of our problems as human beings come from not being able to sit in a room by ourselves for 10 minutes doing nothing. And uh, so the ability to just be with yourself for 10 minutes and ask these big questions like, what is my zone of genius? And what do I most love to do? And what do I love to do that creates the biggest break for other people? You know, like, um, I tracked down one time, I, I had a business for a while that I later sold uh, to a big public company uh, called the Spiritual Cinema Circle. A friend of mine and I started it, and it was um, shipping inspirational DVDs around the world to 25,000 people or so who were members. And so it was a very successful business for a number of years, and then I sold it. And people would frequently interview me and say, where did you get an idea like that? Because that was like nothing, nobody had ever thought of that before. And I said, it really boiled down to 10 seconds in meditation one day because I was sitting in meditation. In fact, I was sitting in this very room in the year of 2003. And I was very interested in um, getting some inspirational movies like Conversations with God made and um, others like that. Um, But we weren't having any luck pitching those ideas to Hollywood. 
uh, they kept saying, no, no, there's nobody that wants to watch movies like that, you know, and, uh, you know, people want to see things blown up. They don't want to see, <laughs> they don't yeah. want to see spiritual movies. And so we kept kind of beating our heads against the wall. But one morning here in meditation, I've been a daily meditator, by the way, since 1972 or three around there. Uh, so I've, uh, you know, it's an important part of my life. Mm. And so I was just doing my regular meditation one day. And all of a sudden, I had this 10 second idea. Oh, instead of trying to get Hollywood to make the movies, let's just go to where the movies are and go around Hollywood. So it was kind of like a a move uh, in the game of Go, you know, rather than the game of chess, which is very linear. In the game of Go, the Japanese game of Go, you often go around things to encircle them. And so um, it was a moment for me uh, that it only took 10 seconds, but it later led to $10 million when I sold the business. And so what happened in that 10 seconds was I suddenly saw a new way to do something that needed to get done. So what we would do then, we would go out and find independent filmmakers who were making beautiful movies that they couldn't get Hollywood to release, and we would license them just for a month to show them to our members. And everybody was happy to do it because, you know, we were often paying, you know, fairly large sums of money, $50,000 or so to a young filmmaker to use his film for a month. And and even if we were only paying him $5,000, it was still more than many of these folks had made off their movie. And so it was helping people get out into the world. The key thing was, was figuring out this whole new way to go about it. And I singular, uh, singularized that because that's what often find, you find happen in your zone of genius. Suddenly, a new way comes up that you hadn't thought of before that makes the whole enterprise easier. And so we created this great business of licensing these films for one month, putting them on a DVD, sending them out to people. And soon, within a few months, we had a great profitable profitable little business. And so I think that's a good example, a template for us to use because it shows that a moment of breakthrough thinking can solve a problem and also create real-world practical miracles out there because not only did it create $10 million worth of value for the shareholders, but it also created hundreds of hours of inspiration for people out in the world. Like I remember getting an email from a woman somewhere in the outback of Pakistan who had to walk 25 miles to get to a place where one of her friends had the DVDs every month. And to me, that just yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that made my, not only made my day, it made my year when I read that email because, see, to me, human beings are never going to be fully satisfied until our own heart's desires are expressed in a way that helps other people reach their heart's desires too. So I think that built into human beings is a desire to be for other human beings. And I know that's not a popular way of thinking. You know, we're all always taught that it's dog eat dog and you got to fight your way to the top and all that. But I think a new way of thinking is that there's plenty here for everybody if we can just expand our thinking enough so that everybody gets an opportunity for abundance. But it has to start here first. You know, yeah. you can't just tell a person, okay, you have the power to create abundance. They have to come somehow, oh, 
I have the power to create abundance. Okay, I'm going to take that on just as a great new idea and see what I can make of. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, like, I think it's it's worth, because um, I want to kind of keep keep zoning in and teasing apart this zone of genius, but um, I like the way that you compare it to the zone of excellence, you know, that because, you know, I've seen this in my own life, this zone of excellence you talk about where we're doing like excellent work, but it's not quite it in some way. So, um, and then, and then we make that shift. And I wondered if you could sort of, you know, contrast those two. Yes. And I'm still like, you know, I'm like, what is it that has people decide to, to, to live in their zone of genius? You know, like, yeah. Yes. Well, sometimes it's pain that causes people to do that because living in your zone of excellence too long creates pain in your body and in your relationships. Like, when I first began to catch on to this, Joel, um, I had like two or three very successful people in a row. I remember one guy in particular who said, I'm a successful attorney. I'm 40 years old. I make $350,000 a year. I'm in the country club. My wife loves it. My kids love it. Everybody loves it but me, and I feel like I'm dying inside. Mm-hmm. You know, and what is that all about? Well, what it was all about was he'd been living in his zone of excellence too long. And he hadn't been asking himself the question about how can I spend more time in my zone of genius? See, there's a conspiracy to keep you in your zone of excellence, because usually when we're in the saddle, we're making money where other people are depending on us. And they're afraid and we're afraid that if I really bring forth my genius, it's going to cost me something down there. But I haven't seen it happen yet. I see when people, you know, even successful people, when they're, when they open up to their zone of genius, it doesn't cost them anything. They go beyond into a new zone of abundance. And so, but I think it's the the big problem we're talking about here, Joel, is fear. Mm. Because what blocks the zone of genius are those fears. And there aren't that many of them. You know, there's a a very popular one among the coaches that I work with is uh, what I call in the, in the big leap, the fear of outshining. Many people that are in the helping professions have a kind of a fear of going to their full genius, going to their full potential, because they're afraid that it'll outshine other people. Mm-hmm. And that's a programming we get in our early life. A lot of times we're... So, you know, don't outshine your brother or sister, you know, mm. don't be the tall poppy, don't stick out above the crowd. Um, and uh, in, in Australia, they have a saying, don't be the tall poppy, which means mm. don't put your head out above the rest of the poppies because the, par- the farmer will cut it off. And mm. so it's a stay down in the pack kind of idea. And many other cultures have that too. In Sweden, for example, um, they have a concept in the culture called wagam, which is don't be too far ahead. Don't be too far back. Stay down right in the pack and be in the middle. And that's where the safety is. So sometimes it's societal programming like that. Sometimes it's family programming. But in each case, there's some kind of programming where the person chooses unconsciously to live underneath their zone of genius. So mm-hmm. when they stick their head up into their zone of genius. It's scary up there. And they, and they pull their head back down. And that's the upper limit problem. And so what I'm getting at is having us just in the beginning, stick our heads out for 10 minutes a day, 
see that it's a good thing and gradually then come more and more and more and more until you get where you're spending 90 some percent of your time in your zone of genius. It's, it takes some work though, no question about it. You've got to focus on it for a while. It's not an overnight miracle. People ask me in the big leap, how long did it take you to write the big leap? And I always say about 35 years because from the first time I had the idea until I finally figured out how to write the book, you know, 35 years had gone by. Mm. Like one of the, the signs, the, the limits that I recognized in myself from the book was feeling flawed, you know, like there was just this sense of, uh, you know, who am I to be able to express my genius? You know, that I'm that, like, I'm not, my genius isn't genius enough. You know, it's, I'm, there's something wrong with me. So yes. it will be just okay. You know, so what's the point in trying, you know? Um, and you know, like with all these beliefs, it's like it's so insidious, and it's like the matrix. Once you start to capture that that fear, basically, it's it's a there's a lot of fear and shame caught up in there. Um, but it's so liberating as well. Yeah. Um, well, Sophocles said it very well. He said, "When you're afraid, everything rustles." You know, because you're listening. <laughs> the fear is everywhere, uh, but it's coming from down in here. And I think that one of our biggest fears as human beings is that fear of fully shining. And, I mean, look at a lot of the religious mythology. You know, somebody shines and then gets crucified. You know, there's there's a whole process of, look out, if you really shine, you know, it could be harmful to you. And a lot of times people talk about mad geniuses, you know, that there's, you know, that geniuses somehow makes people crazy. But I haven't really seen that. Uh, What I've seen is people really being able to tap into their genius in such a way that it makes the lives of themselves and everybody around them even better. The fear you're talking about, we call it here the fear of being fundamentally flawed. And it comes from um, having been convicted of an imaginary crime at some time in your life by somebody who thought you had flaws in some way, and so you take that on. And so, um, you know, the, many of us have that fear that there's something deeply wrong with me, and it keeps us from really expanding to our full uh, zone of genius. But you have to just, um, when you encounter any of these fears, it's, it's you have to kind of like shine a light on them. Like I remember when I was a kid, I had this curtain that would blow sometimes in the wind, and I thought there was some ghost in it. But my mother gave me a flashlight and just said, well, shine a light on it and you'll see whether it's a ghost or not. And mm-hmm. so it's a good metaphor for what to do with all these fears. You just shine a light on them and get friendly with them and you'll realize there was nothing there. Mm, nice, nice. Um, w- yeah, so like people listening into this might be wondering like, how do I know when I've got my, when I'm tapping into my zone of genius? And I know we've, we've pointed a few of the signs, like, you know, what do you love to do and what is it you do that you have the most impact with? And how do people know when they start to tune into that genius? How can they be confident about it? One thing is that when you're in your zone of genius, time disappears. And so one good thing to look at is what you do that you're into so much that time disappears. And if you're having that experience more and more and more, 
you're occupying your zone of genius. Like for me, part of my zone of genius involves writing. And when I'm really into it, I'll start in here maybe at 5.30 in the morning, and I'll suddenly realize, oh, it's 7.30. Wow, where did that two hours go? And so that's a good sign that you're in your zone of genius. Yeah. Another, another good sign is that often people will start to notice the signs of it. They'll start to notice that you're being more efficient as you go about your day. You're being more clear about what you want. You're, be- you're more clear about the yeses and the noes in your life. And so people will often comment on an increased clarity about you as you go about uh, occupying your zone of genius more. Mm. Nice. So, yeah, I can imagine um, it sounds a bit like people get into a flow state, you know, the time disappears, they're in a flow state, and you're also getting more ruthless with, hey, this is my zone of genius. I'm saying yes to this. I'm saying no to those things. And, um, you know, the more you put your energy into this, the, the better your output is, you know, and yeah. Yeah, and that brings up an important point, Joel, and that is that for successful people, you need to pay attention to your no as much as you need to pay attention to your yes. So it's important to, I think, live in a general state of yesness, if we could say it that way, you know, to be positive toward life, to be positive toward learning and that kind of thing. But you also have to be able to say clear no and mean it because, um, you know, like a friend of mine, uh, Jerry Jones said, a very successful man, um, he said, the best deals I've ever done are the deals I didn't do. And what he meant by that is that the things he said no to even though they may have made money for somebody else and that kind of thing, would have been such a headache and so problematic for him that it freed up tremendous time for him to do other things. Mm. And so I know that for a fact now in my own life, because probably once a week, somebody comes here and pitches me an idea that they want me to invest in, or they want my counsel on. I just got one about an hour ago, um, that a great new invention that, uh, could uh, help people quit smoking by teaching them breathing processes. And in each situation like that, sometimes I can say yes, but 99.9% of the time, I need to say what I call an enlightened no. It's not a no, that's a stupid idea. It's a no, I'm doing other things, and no, I'm putting my time someplace else, and no, um, I wish you well with that. Uh, But it's kind of an enlightened no. It's not a slam the door no. It's a creating space for the person no. And so a lot of times things I've said no to, the person has gone on and been very successful with them. And God bless them. You know, that's that's great. Um, Because uh, I think the more things you say no to, the more things of quality that you can say yes to. So I've become a a good practitioner of the enlightened no, and I recommend it highly. Same thing, we have a a concept here called high firing, that if somebody needs to be fired, we do what we call high firing, which is firing them in such a way that it creates more possibilities. And actually, in many cases, the person thanks us for firing them, because Mm. 
it's that we've liberated them to go someplace else and do something else and maybe contribute in another way, but it wasn't working here. And so we, we fire them in such a way that it gives them some wings to go somewhere else and do it. So I think it's important in life to, especially for successful people, to really get nimble about their yeses and nos. So they're not making yeses that they don't really want to make. That's a big problem for people. And another situation is not just saying an automatic no, but to listen carefully in a way that empowers people that you're saying no to. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Um, so, like, say when you because you coach these people and uh, you know CEOs and entrepreneurs and musicians and uh, founders of huge billion-dollar companies and stuff. And um, w- can you tell me about the trajectory that you see? Say you somebody makes that decision. I'm going to live in my zone of genius. I'm going to. I'm going to take a risk, basically. I'm going to maybe let go of something, my zone of excellence, where I've been really successful, but in my heart of hearts, I know it's not really what I want to contribute. And then they start to get clear, what is that contribution? Like, how does that play out for people? Like, what, like do you, as a coach, you have to kind of keep them on track with that? Well, first of all, some people are just kind of born with it, you know, they, but most of us aren't like that. I certainly wasn't like that. I was just, as you were talking, uh, remembering going down to uh, Austin, Texas, many times during the nineties to uh, coach uh, people at Dell computer. The, com- the top team there at the time was Michael Dell and a fellow named Mort Topfer and a fellow named Kel- Kevin Rollins. And um, so like I was thinking of Michael, a mind like his doesn't appear very often, you know, like one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. And also one of the most open to learning. If mm. somebody brings him a piece of stuff, he, you know, an average person might not want to look at, he doesn't spend any time being defensive. He just wants to know it. You know, his mind just opens and he, you know, gets it and moves on. Yeah. And so I've never seen a person more quick to learn things. And so we don't get those people very often. 99% of the people I have worked with weren't born that way, but they got that way through the systematic, diligent practice of being open to learning in every moment. They gradually learn to be open to learning. And see, I think one of the biggest problems that people, particularly in the business world, face is getting defensive in the presence of things that are being given to them, instead of receiving the learning from it, they get defensive and say, no, I don't want to entertain that. I mean, and certainly see it in the political realm too. Um, So um, people give politicians incredible amount of feedback and many times they get very defensive and start defending themselves rather than responding to what's going on. And so, what we need to do is develop a life stance of being open to learning because that commitment can get you through situations that almost nothing else can get you through. Because see, when you're operating a Ferrari at 180 miles an hour, you have to do more than use your logic. You have to be so into the experience that you can detect minor fluctuations out on the front wheel. 
And as a matter of fact, I was listening to the audio of, uh, I was watching, just flipped past it on when I was exercising the other day, of a Grand Prix race where the drivers were equipped with things that they talked to their pit about. And you could overhear these conversations and the guy would be saying, you know, something's going wrong in the right front brake. You know, that just some little thing that he noticed there. Ah, and ah. so when you're operating your business at the speed of life, that's what we say here, it's coming at the speed of life, you need to do more than just use your logical capabilities. You need to have a combination of vision, logic, and intuition. Mm-hmm. And intuition grows out of this thing we're talking about called the zone of genius. One of the things I've seen in people that are operating in their zone of genius, highly intuitive. They yeah. can feel things as well as think through things. They can feel their way through situations rather than think their way through. And I'm not saying they're not logical. I mean, they're incredibly more brilliantly logical than I am. But on the other hand, they often balance that with an intuitive feel that makes them go against their logic sometimes in favor of that intuition. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Well, in a way, like I, I, because I can imagine as we get into this zone of genius more, and I've noticed in my own life, the more I've allowed myself to be in that creative space, um, the more it is a kind of full spectrum experience, you know, and that actually I have to really trust my, um, my body and my emotions and my felt experience in order to be in relationship with, with um, whatever it is that my genius is, you know. And that actually by being in relationship with it, it starts to, to work me and open me up and, 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 and creativity starts to open up. Things start to come through. I can start to use myself as an instrument and sense into things and feel and open myself up to allow myself to be more creative, to allow myself to feel more successful. Um, so it seems like these things are all connected. Well, I appreciate you bringing that out, Joel, because uh, like if you come to one of our seminars, we spend a lot of time helping people learn more about their bodies using their breathing and other tools we've developed um, because you see the part of us that is involved with logic is only about the size of a 50 cent piece up here on the left side of the brain. And then there's the rest of us, you know, it's like uh, it would be like trying to judge a building from a coat of paint on the roof you know, it doesn't capture the whole full magnificence of us. And to me, we have to just really honor our whole bodies. You know, just, I always use the example of our livers. Nobody ever thinks of their liver, but it's sitting here doing 300 things every hour. You know, it's got this incredible internet going on in itself of making little decisions and producing like cranking out, probably since we've been talking here, your liver has cranked out a million base pairs of DNA. And so you're a whole different person than you were at the beginning of the conversation. So I think we really have to celebrate that as far as our human capability goes, that anything we can dream of has already been dreamed up in our body just by giving us consciousness and the ability to think through things and to make plans and to create images and, and to create goals and those kinds of things. Mm, nice. Nice. Um, 
Well, like the, it inspires me a lot. What would be one thing that you would share with coaches, like a, a piece of advice? Anytime you're stuck, here's a 10 second piece of advice that's come in really handy for me. Anytime you're stuck or one of your clients is stuck, take three deep, easy breaths and change your body position. That's actually a foolproof way of resetting your energy system in your body. Is Let me just show you how easy it is. I'm going to take three deep breaths. And change my body position. That's all it took. And all of a sudden, I have a full, fresh wave of energy rolling through my body. Mm. And so anytime you're feeling a little bit off-center, that's a great 10-second trick you can use to really reset your energy system. It works so well, by the way, that uh, I read a study one time in the medical literature. They were testing out an antidepressant, and they had one group take the antidepressant, and then they had another group just sit and read about depression for an hour. And then they wanted to have something do in the other group to do something but not take the drug. And so they taught them to take three deep breaths and to change their body position when they started feeling depressed. And then they did the study, and guess which group got better? You know, the, the ones with the antidepressants, they got better. The ones with the breathing got even better. And the other yeah. ones that read about depression didn't get better at all. So right. uh, that's where I got this idea of taking three deep breaths and changing your body position. Uh, it's yeah. a really a great little way of shaking up your energy system and resetting things. Mm, nice, nice. Um, well, it's been a really uh, great 50 minutes, I think we've been speaking for and um, we've covered so many rich topics. I just want to thank you for your generosity. My pleasure. Excellent, excellent. Um, and I hope it inspires everybody watching as well to, to kind of make that commitment to live from their zone of genius too. So You're only a breath away from it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kay. Thanks, Joel. Hi, it's me again, Joel. Uh, before you go, just wanted to give you the heads up about the podcast. If you like this one with Gay then you can hear more. Um, the podcast is all about how do you become a more transformational, more impactful coach. And we're going to be speaking to a really wide variety of people about coaching, you know, getting a, a ton of different perspectives on that. So you can find out more by heading to coachesrising.com and you'll find the podcast page there. You can subscribe, subscribe on iTunes, things like that. So until next time, be well. <laughs>